And I might actually need a battery. If you got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up 1 Samuel chapter 18. And we're going to continue studying the life of a man after God's own heart. And the exciting thing for me as we look at the life of David is to get outside of the concept that somehow David was, I don't know, more glorious. That he had something going for him different than us. So David's a sinner just like we were. The difference can be between us and David. David's primary focus in life, his primary thought, his purpose behind whatever he did was to honor the Lord. Not to receive accolades. David never cared if he was king. Do we all get that? He was happy being a shepherd. He was hanging out with the sheep. He never really asked, you know, hey God, I'd like to be bigger. I'd like to be better. You know, maybe run the whole country or something. He was just... Hanging out with the sheep. Loving God. The scripture lays out for us this concept. Not to despise the day of small beginnings. For as David and his initial training field was as a shepherd, it prepared within him the heart God needed for a king. Wouldn't it be nice to have a king who cared about the people? That it mattered? And it wasn't about money or who helped me become king or who I have to honor or who I have to, what what wheels I got to grease. Just someone who said, I love the people and I want to do right by them. Well, we do have a king like that. His name is Jesus and he is coming back. And you won't have to vote for him because it won't matter. He will come. He will rule and he will reign. And he becomes for us, as we study the life of David, David becomes a picture for us of the return of the king. Think of the things that they have in common. I mean, Psalm 23, which David wrote, said, The Lord is my shepherd. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? Gives his life for the sheep. That he has that attitude, that desire, that that, uh, want To meet the needs, to do those kind of things for the people. The other thing is we see David was anointed king a long time before he becomes king. From the study we have today, the story we read today, it's 20 years until David's king. And all that while, waiting to become king, waiting for God to do his work, David trusted in the Lord. No matter what happened. That's why he said in the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God said, one day he'll raise me up. He said, if I humble myself, he will exalt me. And David is a practical lesson in that occurring. He's just a shepherd. He wasn't asking for nothing else. Would have been happy with the sheep forever. He was just bringing his brother's food last week, right? He's just going to give them their, their food for the battle. And he finds himself facing an enemy that nobody else would face because he was able to face the enemy in the power of the Lord. And God gave him the victory. And as we come to the, the end of that victory, that battle with Goliath, I wonder how many times in David's life, looking back on that day, I wonder how many times he wished he'd have never fought that giant. I wonder if he ever thought, man, hang all this stuff. Hang this. I'm spending 10 years living in caves, running. I know David despaired. I read the Psalms. I read the Psalms that he wrote during that time. As his, his heart is heavy, but yet he's, his spirit stayed firm on the concept. If God has called me, he'll raise me up. And I don't have to promote myself. And that's what God did. All the way through David's life. We, we finish up. Let's just back up and read verse 58. Verse 58 of chapter 17. The chapter break here between 17 and 18. I don't want you to lose the continuous thought. There's not a pause in between them. This is still a continuation. The battle of, of, for, for Goliath has taken place. David chopped off his head. They chased the Philistines for 10 miles. They 
took, you know, routed them. They took their stuff. They, they come back to the camp. It says, and Saul said to David, he's like, who is this guy? Whose son are you, young man? I'm always blown away that David was a worshiper and a warrior because that's two very different classifications of people. Typically, your average worship leader is not the same guy that you would throw a sword and a shield to and say, let's go whoop the enemy. But that was David. That was David's heart. Worshiper and warrior. He was just as likely to cry and fall on his face before the Lord in front of whoever was around as he was to pick up a sword and, and take somebody down who was blaspheming the name of the Lord. I mean, he was... He was both of those things. And so when Saul, he he knew David as that boy, the little kid who comes and plays a harp for him. When the spirit is upon him, when he's feeling uneasy, when he's got that that spirit that the Lord sent to, to just dismay the soul of Saul. But here the warrior standing before him, Saul don't even recognize him. Whose son are you? What do you mean whose son am I? I'm that fellow you call for whenever you're having a bad day. But he doesn't recognize him. He doesn't even acknowledge the same thing. And so David answered and said, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And when he had finished speaking, so what we know occurs between 58 and 18.1 is David tells the story of how God delivered Goliath into his hand. And whatever took place in that story, as David finishes speaking, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. At that moment in chapter 18, verse 1, probably one of the greatest friendships men can ever know occurs. Well, you see, that's the friendship wrought on the battlefield. A lot of other people, they look at this story and they try to read into it a hundred different things. Let me tell you what you're talking about. Two warriors who have bled on the field of battle who have been in incredible situations. Jonathan won against 10,000. David himself against Goliath. The, the odds, the things that they faced, the struggles they went through, the battles that took place within their soul. You want to see people knit together? Find a unit that has been in battle together in Iraq or Afghanistan and talk to those guys. You want to know what it's like for two brothers to love each other? Men to love each other? To say, man... I don't know how I live back here in the world, but when we were there, in the grime, in the mud, in the blood together, I'd have done anything for him. So Jonathan sees in David, this is, this is like my a guy just exactly like me, a heart like mine. It was willing to take the battle that the Lord calls him to. Both of them, Jonathan and David, wanted to accomplish whatever God had. Jonathan was willing to say, hey, who knows? God may give it to us. We just go fight him by ourselves." David had the exact same heart. So God knits these two guys together. Now, I want you to think about this. In the entire, all the relationships that any of these guys would have, the biggest threat to Jonathan is David. Jonathan's not just the prince. He's the crown prince. Jonathan is next in line for the throne. Every man, woman, and child in Israel expects Jonathan to be king. And Jonathan is going to know within the next couple of verses, I believe, that David has been anointed by Samuel to be the next king. There's all the reason in the world for there to be jealousy. There's all the reason in the world for there to be strife and envy. But all there is as a love between two brothers. Isn't that how it ought to be in the body of Christ today? You know, churches are not competitors. There's no score. I don't even know how you would keep score. The attitude is simply that we are here to do one thing. Jesus called us to go into all nations and make disciples of all men. That's what he called us to do. Period. And that's what we're all supposed to be doing. And so 
you know, one body is bigger than another, or one group is different than somebody else. You have all these issues, and within that, within our human spirit, there's a natu- natural tendency that leads toward competitiveness. But it's not that way in the body of Christ. If we're all members of the body of Christ, us and every other church in town, then there's no reason for a part of the body of Christ to attack another part of the body of Christ. We should be able to function as a hand, as a foot, as a under the direction of the Lord God Almighty. He's the head. All, all we fall at some place in submission to that. When we are walking in the Spirit, when we are abiding in that place, there isn't that jealousy. Just like here. Jonathan's not jealous. It says that his soul was knit to David. Man, Jonathan has David's back from that day till the day he dies. And David has Jonathan's back the same way. And that's how it ought to be. That's how we ought to see the body of Christ functioning. It's interesting because you couldn't have two more different people, right? Jonathan, crown prince, living in a castle. 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 I don't know what I was doing with palace. Is that what I did? Castle. Anyways, he's living in the castle or the palace or the castle, if you want to put it together. And as he's living in that place, you know, he's got the only other sword in the country. He's got all this favor. And then you have David, who is the least of his family, not the firstborn like Jonathan, the lastborn, the least of his family. They don't really care about him. He's a guy they put out on the shepherd. They're not two more different people, but their hearts knit together for a common purpose. What's the common purpose? The Lord. Here's what Paul said. In the body of Christ, there is neither Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. We are all what? One in Christ. It don't matter if you've been a Christian for 110 years. You are not more righteous than the guy who got saved yesterday. The righteousness you have is the same righteousness he has, that which is imputed to your life through Jesus Christ. We are all one. Period. And I, I just it's so beautifully il- illustrated in the friendship that we have between David and Jonathan. It says in verse 2, And Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Remember in chapter 16, he was going back and forth to play the harp, and then he'd go home. Come back, play the harp, go home. Now, he's not going to go home anymore. And then look what it says in verse 3. It's so interesting. Then Jonathan and David, this, this is literal, Jonathan and David cut covenant because he loved them as his own soul. Here's what cutting covenant meant. You guys remember the story of Abraham, right? When God told him to cut all those animals in half and separate them apart. When you cut covenant, you would cut an animal in half, whatever that animal might be. It might be a sheep, a goat, a bull, whatever it is. You cut it in half and you pulled the pieces apart and you met one another between that chopped animal and you made a vow, a promise, a covenant. That's what the covenant was. You made a promise to one another that it's you and me till the wheels fall off or we will be like this animal that's been cut in half. I promise that I will have your back. I promise that I will have your back. That's what David and, and Jonathan did. They cut covenant. You're going to see it played out because one day David's going to come to the throne and Jonathan is dead. And Jonathan doesn't have any kids left or nothing except for one child that's been in hiding, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, who's lame, and, and David is going to go out of his way to find this kid of Jonathan and give him a place at the palace for the rest of his life. Because he cut covenant with his brother. He said, I'm going to take care. I will take care of you and yours. You take care of me and mine. That's why I believe that Jonathan knew David was anointed to be king. Because in essence, what Jonathan's saying is, when you become king, you take care of me and my family. What usually happened when somebody who wasn't in the royal family became king? Yeah, you kill everybody who could be a, a threat to the throne. But here they cut covenant. Here they make promise to one another. And even more than that, the very next verse says, And Jonathan 
took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. The crown prince humbled himself, took off everything that made him royal, and gave it to David. Every outward sign of him being the royal crown prince, the next king of Israel, he gave to David. Well, what's he saying? So you're the king, brother. You're going to be the king. Don't forget that Jonathan loved the Lord and trusted the Lord and understood what God was doing. He followed the Lord's leading in battle after battle after battle through which God gave him the victory. Just as we're going to see God do the same with David. So Jonathan, man, he takes off all that outer garb, all that stuff that says you're the next king, and he gives it to David. And in a similar fashion, you and I, when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have to make a decision to take off all of our royal garb, if you will, and get off the throne in our life and give it to another. The son of David, Jesus Christ. You see, I can put my faith and trust in Him and I can sit on the throne and leave Him somewhere in my life and I'm not surrendered or submitted to Him. I'm surrendered and submitted to Christ when I am willing to obey His Word. When I'm willing to say, I don't understand how it works, but this is what you asked me to do, so this is what I'm going to do. That's a never-ending struggle. And it's simple concepts. We, you know, like I said, I shared before, we don't have to get deep. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a command. Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. There's not really any good way around that. Husbands, love your wives as, as your own bodies. Wives, see that you respect your husbands. That, those, I mean, that's just in the relationship with husbands and wife. How about children obey your parents? Do you understand when that ceases to be? Or children honor your parents? I guess as soon as you don't have parents anymore. When they're with the Lord, then you're not a child anymore who has parents that need honored. And they're, the concepts that the Lord lays out. It is possible for me... To be someone who says, I believe in Christ and, and I'm trusting Him, but to not yield control of my life and to live my life on my terms for me. And I'm doing my thing and, you know, I believe in Jesus, but He does not have control. That's what Jonathan symbolizes when he strips off all that stuff. The, there's only two swords until this battle. There was only two swords in all of Israel. You understand the value in handing that sword over to David? Who fought Goliath, not with a sword, but with a sling? That's incredibly valuable. It's also saying, you're my defense. And how, how hard is that for us in our Christian walk to live our lives honoring what God said? God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay he said, you don't have to worry about getting back or making sure somebody understands where you're coming from or defending yourself. The Lord says, I'll defend you. We don't sometimes like that. Sometimes when God defends us, we don't really see the, the beating that should come. But God says, vengeance is mine. Nobody gets off scot-free. Nobody. God says, I'll take care of it. You give it to me. I'll be your defense. He takes off his robe, that robe that speaks of his, his royalty, that robe in the scripture that speaks of righteousness, and he puts it on David. Whose righteousness are we running around in? Are we running around in our own righteousness? Do we wear our robe, or are we willing to say, no, I stand in the righteousness of Christ? It's the same thing. It's the same action that we see Jonathan taking to his David, even as we ought to take before our David, the Lord Jesus Christ. From that moment in verse 4, from that moment, 20 years until he wears a crown. How, many, how long did, did uh, Abraham wait for a child? How long did Joseph uh, waste away in prison? How long between the promise that God gave to the fulfillment? So where is the promise coming? 
And our fathers went to sleep. People were saying Jesus was going to come and he still hasn't come. So where is it? The Bible says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness. But he is long suffering how? Desiring what? That no one would perish. So sometimes between the promise of deliverance and the fulfillment of deliverance, there's a time. Between the promise of being a king and actually putting on the crown. 20 years. It's 20 years of basic ease, right? Just hanging out in the palace waiting for something to happen. Is that how it's going to work out for him? <laughs> you know, the devil is not just going to sit back and let things ride. You make waves for the kingdom of God and you are on the radar. You want to stay off the radar? Live for the devil. But if you live for the Lord, you will be on the radar. God will be, will, the, the enemy will be zooming in on you. The attacks will come, even as the attacks come here. Let's take a look. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So he bridged the gap between the, the army and the servants. Why? Because he's a lowly person, man. He was a shepherd. They seen him as a, like the, the people's general or whatever. He's not the general yet, but the, the people's colonel, probably a better term. And, and so the poor people, they look to him. The, the regular people, they look to him. The people in the army, they respect him because of the things that he's done. And so now it happened. Um, now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine. That the women came out of the cities of Israel and sang and danced to meet King Saul uh, with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instrument. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Turn with me just real quick to Proverbs 27, 21. I love the Proverbs. I love the things that the that the Proverbs can lay out for us and the promises that we can receive and the wisdom that we gain. Proverbs 27, 21 says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. It's making a comparison. The refining or pot is for silver. That's where silver gets cooked to be purified. The furnace for gold. That's where gold is purified in the furnace. What about for a man? And a man is tested by what others say to him. Good or bad? Pleasant or unpleasant? A man is tested by what others say to him. How we take the, the I don't know, the good with the bad. How we take scorn and how we take praise. Here we have praise. Now, as we look at this praise, there's two things you're going to notice. One, obviously David is getting ascribed greater and greater praise. And Saul is getting praise he doesn't deserve. If you remember the battle of Goliath, Saul didn't do a blasted thing. He quaked in his tent. Why should he have, why should they be singing that he killed his thousands? But they're trying to honor Saul anyway. But of course they demean him in the process by honoring David. By honoring David. So let's see what happens. It says, Then Saul was very angry, and the seeing displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Oh, here's the problem. He knows the kingdom has been stripped from him, right? Samuel came right to his face and said, You have been stripped of the kingdom. The Holy Spirit left him. The power to be who he needed to be, he doesn't have anymore. He knows there's another king coming. And now he sees in David all the things he isn't. And as he looks to David, he, the, the envy, the jealousy arises within his soul. And he begins to become angry. He begins to become angry. The scripture goes on. So look at verse 9. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Meyer had this to say. Among the most terrible of human sins is jealousy. The parent of the darkest and blackest crimes that have disgraced the annals of our race. Now, Saul's entire life is going to change. 
from the, dis- the choices that Saul makes now, when he's faced with what the people were saying about him, when he's faced with the absence of the Spirit in his life, when he's faced with the own choices for sin in his life, the choices he makes now are, is going to define him for the rest of his life. This is how we're going to know Saul, the guy who spends the rest of his life trying to kill David. We forget about the kid who trusted the Lord in the beginning. We forget about the one who walked with God and said, Man, who am I to be king? Now he's building his own monuments. That's how dramatically our lives can change when we begin to take the praise of people and allow it to build up our mind to think we're really something. When in truth, we're nothing. Whatever we accomplish in our life, we do by the grace of God. Whether you are a believer or not. Case in point, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar used to walk around and say, oh, I'm the greatest king who ever lived. It even sounds better on VeggieTales when he does it. He's, he's like got it. You know, he's done it all, all these great things. And, the, and Daniel, through the Lord, comes to him and says, Hey, king, man, God says if you don't knock it off, he'll show you that he's the one who sets up kingdoms. He's the one who built your kingdom for you. He gave you favor. He gave you grace when you didn't deserve it. Nebuchadnezzar said, Oh, he was good for a couple of weeks, right? And we can be good for a couple of weeks. Then he walked out in his garden and he saw the hanging gardens in Babylon and he said, Wow, what an amazing kingdom which I have built. In that moment, the Lord took his mind and his mind left him. Now you can make all the arguments you want. Seven years, seven seasons, it doesn't make any difference. For a period of time, he was as mad as a... Yeah, that's a good one. He was mad as the hatter. He'd running around, eating grass like a cow. He grew out his fingernails like claws. His hair grew super long. He just was all crazy and ratty. And you know what happened when the king went crazy like that? Well, nothing. Because God retained his kingdom in his hand to give it back to Nebuchadnezzar at the end of those seven years. What would happen if our president went totally loony? Started eating grass. And it, what? Now, come on, come on. Yeah. If he was sitting out in the lawn and he started eating grass out of the lawn and he, and he grew out his hair all crazy and his fingernails and he didn't talk, he just growled to people all the time. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't stay the president, would he? But here, King Nebuchadnezzar, God was showing him a point. I'm the one who holds your kingdom. So nobody took it from him. Nobody took it. God's the one... Who does? God's the one who delivers. God's the one who ascribes these things. And so we see Saul eyeing David with his attitude, this jealousy, this concept of, you're going to steal my kingdom. It's God's kingdom to give. God's kingdom to give. Just like he gave it to Saul, he'll give it to David. But the beautiful thing is, God has a timing. We struggle with that concept of God's timing sometimes. God, I believe you got this call in my life to do something. Maybe you got a call in my life to be a missionary. Maybe you got a call in my life to do whatever. You name it. You got a call in my life. But it's not always for right now. It's not always for this moment. Sometimes it's 20 years later. Sometimes it's 10 years later. The Bible says, for the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So... God's never in that big a hurry. That's the point. His plan follows his time schedule. In the same way here. Saul, by worry, David's not going to become king any sooner. Not any sooner at all. But look at verse 10. It's interesting. And it happened on the next day that a distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. What was that? What kind of spirit is this spirit? A distressing spirit. Uh, earlier it says an evil spirit. Hmm. An evil spirit came from God? The Bible says, everything that enters our life passes through the hands of a God who loves us. So the Lord allows this spirit to pester Saul. Not only does it pester him, look what it says. 
And he prophesied inside the house. Now what in the world? An evil spirit comes upon Saul and he prophesies? Well, that's what that word means. The word means to prophesy. The idea is that something came upon Saul and he spoke out. The word in Hebrew for prophesy is only attributed to prophecies from God when it's dealing with something that God gave someone to speak. When it's another being or another thing that gave him utterance, it's still the same word, but it's not ascribed to the God, to God. This prophecy, if you will, is in essence a demonized utterance that he makes. He's running around like a lunatic. He's saying things that don't make any sense because his spirit has taken control of Saul. The spirit had taken control of Saul. And so he's uttering, he's running around, going crazy. And so David did what he always did. He grabbed his harp. David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. You want to know which one you take after, take a look at what's in your hand. You got a spear for fighting back? Or you got the harp? David's attitude was, I want to try to heal my brother. Now, what had Saul done worthy of being healed? It hadn't been all that nice to David, and it's only going to get worse from here. But David's heart, the heart of the Lord, the heart God asks us to have, is that heart of restoration, reaching out to a, 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 who at one time was a brother, right? Saul at one time was, was serving the Lord, at least in, the, in the, those sense of the words, the Old Testament sense. He's, he's following those, those concepts, but now he's not. Now he's stumbled. Now he's, he's in a bad place. And so David's trying to heal. He's trying to help. But Saul, he's not trying to help. He's reaching for a, a spear. He's reaching for a spear. What's in our hand? The attitude to heal or the attitude to hurt? The attitude to heal or the attitude to hurt? Well, he grabs the spear and Saul casts the spear for he said, I'll pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Do you hear what he just said? So David, you ever said, you know, what, how's that go? You fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I don't think that's biblical. Because the Bible says Saul tried to pin him to the wall at least two times. And twice David escaped. Even though Saul's attitude was to hurt David, David's attitude toward Saul was never as his enemy. Ever. The worst he's ever going to do is cut the hem of his garment, which is a symbol. We'll see when we get there. That's the worst he'll ever do. He doesn't ever touch his body, never throws a sword. He did. David's a pretty good fighter. We agree. I mean, he's pretty, pretty uh, adept in the field of battle. Saul, he's probably a little older. He's not so quick. Don't you think David could have took that spear out that wall and showed him how to do it? And we pulled his spear out. And let me show you how to pin somebody to the wall, Saul. It's like this. There. You threw the spear at me first. How many times our kids say that? He hit me first. Uh Uh-huh. But Jesus, he was hit over and over and over. But he didn't strike back. He calls us to love our enemies. That's what he said. Love those who use you, he said. Anybody have anybody who uses them in their life? That's the call he gives us. That's the call. That's the desire. Well, he escaped from him. And Saul, verse 12, was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he but had departed from Saul. Saul recognized in David everything that he had lost. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence. Right, get David out of here. I don't want to see him no more. Now, he's pretty popular, right? The people's number one song in the land is David killed 10,000, right? He's a pretty popular guy. Therefore, he's been removed. And so what's he do? And I don't want you to miss this. He made, a cap, made him a captain of a thousand. Prior to this, he was probably the captain of a hundred. Now he's going to become the captain of a thousand. He promotes him in the army. Why? So he can send him to battle. For what purpose? So that he'll die. But the Lord is with him. Wherever David goes, 
he prospers. Kind of reminds us of Joseph, right? Remember Joseph? No matter how rotten they tried to be to him, whether he was in prison or he was a slave, it worked out for him, right? God's hand of blessing was there with him. Well, the scripture says in verse 14, David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Now, there's two things I want you to grasp in that. One, he didn't hold on to the praise of the people. Everybody needs to know the praise of people is fickle. One day you're the hero, the next day you're a zero. It's not very far from hero to zero. It doesn't take any time to travel that. It can be instant sometimes. So David didn't puff up and think, oh, you know, I'm some big guy because I killed the ten thousands and saw only thousands. I'm pretty popular. He didn't get like that. The second thing we see is he walked wisely in all his ways. He walked after the Lord. How did he walk after the Lord? He didn't have the Proverbs to go look at. He didn't have the Proverbs that that he's going to work out so that, uh, you know, the different Proverbs that he's going to leave for his son and that his son's going to leave for his son. He didn't have that. What did he have? He had this concept. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. And so he walked wise. He walked well. He, He behaved himself properly. We have to be... Just as wary of being corrupted by praise as we have to be crushed by scorn. Neither of those things should have any effect. You should not be corrupted by praise or crushed by scorn. Why? Because what you're doing, you're doing for the Lord. If you're doing it for any other reason, you will be corrupted by praise and crushed by scorn. If the reason we're serving, if the reason we're reaching out so people will notice us or somebody will give us an attaboy, when that attaboy comes, we'll be corrupted because we received praise from men. Or the attaboy doesn't come and we're crushed by scorn because nobody's noticing all the stuff I'm doing. But when the reason you're in battle, like for David, is not because Saul sent me here, but because I'm serving the Lord and I'm doing what God's called me to do. And right now... The Lord has me in this place for this time to do this thing. This is the, where I'm supposed to be. God is in control. Or God is not. God was in control. He directed him. He put him into that place. And rather than have the attitude, oh, that dirty Saul, he's just, this isn't working out. I mean, we all get that stinking thinking, don't we? We all start to think that some somewhere there's this power that's trying to... Uh, ruin us by the events that occur in our life and the reality is it's almighty god trying to define your character in your life by the events that enter into it we have a hard time with that sometimes we have a hard time with that concept but nonetheless god wants to do that perfect work so to not be corrupted by praise or crushed by scorn what we do we do for the lord then it doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter. First time, when I was, when I was in Bible college, <clears throat> somebody found out I played guitar. And I was not very good playing guitar. Somebody found out I played guitar, so they said, Oh, we need to have worship in this class, one of my theology classes, which, you know, you, you should have to do something like that in theology class. So, so they said, hey, we're gonna, we, want, we want you to do worship. And I conned as many people as I could find to do it with me. I don't want to stand up there by myself. And I literally shook like a leaf, man. My knees were knocking. I was so nervous. There's like four people left in the class that weren't up there singing with me. <laughs> my knees are knocking. I mean, you're really, when you do stuff like that, when you teach, when you, when you share your testimony or when you do worship, you are opening up the inside of yourself to people and letting them see, letting them in. I don't know, it's just kind of a weird thing. And during that time, it was all about what people said. If people said that was really good, man, I was, I was super stoked. But if somebody said, man, that was rough, brother. I was broke. It's like rough. What do you mean it was rough? What's wrong with you saying it's rough? What kind of person says that to somebody? So often the praise or the scorn from people would would really rock my walk with the Lord because my attitude was I wasn't doing it for the Lord. I was doing it for them. As soon as that changed, 
As soon as it was about doing it for the Lord, when somebody comes to me and says, man, that was rough, brother, I can say, man, I know. Thank God the Spirit showed up because we'd have been in big trouble. There's no sweat. Because my offering is not to them. My offering is to Him. And my reward is not from them. My reward is from Him. See, that's where David was. It's not, I need Saul to recognize that I'm really important to the army. It was like, hey man, I'm here for the Lord. And we'll have the victory. And we'll, I'll do this as long as God wants me to do it. And it, who cares if Saul never recognized one time that David was a value to his army. Never one time. Yet David was the best, most incredible general in the history of the nation of Israel. Ever. You ever think of anybody else that maybe had to deal with stuff like that? What about Mary? Mary at the age of 15 or 16 is visited by an angel. The angel says, you're going to have a child. Not a child of a man, but it's a child of God. It's an immaculate conception. And for the rest of her life, everybody said, oh, man, she's just loose. She obviously was sleeping with other people. And when Mary came to Jesus at the, at the wedding feast at Cana and said, Lord, now it's so you can show the people that you are really who you are. You can vindicate me right now in front of all these people. Jesus said, woman, what do I have to do with you? What do I have to do? Never did God come out of the heavens and announce to all those people who stood on the corner her whole life, when she walked by and said, you know, her son thinks he's so holy, but really he was born out of wedlock. He's just a bastard child. And she is a horrible sinner to have cheated on her husband, Joseph. Man, he was a good guy. Joseph, he's a good but she, man, well, as a fact, we don't even talk to her. Think about what life was like for her. Forever. And if your existence is going to be for the praise of the people, then you're going to be miserable your whole time. But if your existence becomes, I'm going to honor the Lord with my life here, then what the people do doesn't matter. It's not going to get you off track. And that's the attitude that David has. Man, that's the attitude that's going to carry him through, that's going to take him through this entire ministry as he moves forward. Now, let's see what happens, because it's going to get even worse for him. Verse 15, it says, Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid. Oh, Saul is afraid. Man, i got to trip this dude up. I made him a captain of the thousands. He keeps whooping all the Philistines. So, that's not going to work. He's getting more popular. This is a bigger problem. So I'll try something else. And all of Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and he came in before them. That's a phrase, a Hebraic phrase that means he took care of the people. He protected them. He kept them safe. When there was the enemy out there, David went out and whooped them and kept them safe. and came back in. He took care of them. He was always there for them. And the people loved him. The people loved him. Saul is getting a little uptight about it. So Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. Now you remember, he had promised one of his daughters to whoever killed Goliath. Remember? Remember that promise? I'll give my daughter to whoever kills her. But he hasn't done it yet. We don't know how much time has passed here, but he hasn't done it yet. Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me. And fight the Lord's battles. Now, what most commentators see here and the understanding within the Hebrew is simply this. He says, listen, I'm going to give you my daughter like I promised, you know, to, when you beat Goliath. But I'd really like you to fight a certain number of battles for me. Be valiant for me. Fight the Lord's battles. Strange phrase, right? Be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Maybe flip that the other way. I don't know. But he's, he wants them to fight. So apparently what he does is he says, look, I know I promised you my daughter. Here's the deal. You fight, whatever, 20 battles for me and you can have her. Fight 20 battles for me and she'll be yours. But look what David's response is. And so David said to Saul, who am I? 
What is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? David's like, he does not desire it. He's trying to hang out this cookie for him. Here, there's a cookie. I'll give, you, I'll give you my daughter and you just fight for me and do all these things, fight so many battles for me. And he's like, man, I don't need to be your son-in-law. I'm not trying to climb the ladder of success. I'm not trying to promote myself. I'm just trying to do what God wants me to do. He wasn't asking for any of that stuff. So <clears throat> Saul's going to send him out battle after battle after battle. What's his hope? David dies in the battle, but David keeps coming back. And then he says in verse 19, But it happened at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David. So apparently David went out and fulfilled the request. However many battles it was, David did it. And Saul despised David and gave his daughter to someone else. And so David got angry and then he pinned him to the wall with that spear, right? No, he doesn't. David didn't care anyway. I don't want to be a prince. I don't want to be the son-in-law of the king. I don't care. I just want to serve God. It's not about title. It's not about prestige. You ever known people to whom title was very important? I remember going through Bible college. There was this concept, you know. We did pastoral epistles was a class that all the, whatever, upcoming pastors took. I guess you could call them that. Guys who thought that that was going to be a call on their life. And so I remember one particular time, you know, being in that class and, and then someone asking the, the pastor that was doing it. He says, now when exactly is the title pastor bestowed? And he says, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, when do you, when do you get the, the title? You know, like, you know, you put it, your sign on your door. I'm no longer just Jackie. Now I'm Pastor Jackie. And, he's, and, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, man, we don't bestow no titles. You become pastor when people call you pastor. If they don't call you pastor, you ain't a pastor. What? What if the people never call me pastor? Well, then you're missing the point of the word. What does pastor mean? Servant. Servant. Slave. The attitude. You're there for the people, not the other way around. The people there for you. Now, wherever I went for training, they never painted you a parking place in the front so that nobody would park in your spot. This is pastor's parking. Now, Pastor Gerald, he had pastor parking. He said, if you want to come park at the church, make sure there's plenty of room for everybody in the front. You park as far away from the church as you can walk. Man, that's sometimes a long walk. Sometimes it was a long walk. But it's not about that the, that, the, that the people exist for you. It's that you exist for them. It's not a bestowing titles. It's not about what titles you can have. It's about are you willing to serve a God? David didn't care. I'll serve the Lord. So I'll keep fighting battles. I'll keep going to war. I'll keep doing all these things. Well, listen. So it says, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and this pleased him. Oh, Saul thinks, oh, good. I have another daughter who loves David, Michael. Unfortunately, he's not always going to stay that way. But she, she loves him. And so Saul said, I'll give her to him. Listen to why. That she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Is that a good reason to give your daughter away to be the wife of another man? That's crazy. They're crazy, but he don't care. He just wants to see David destroyed. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. Well, Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Listen, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you, so therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law? He's like, one, I don't really care to be the king's son. I don't know why you guys are so uptight about this. And two, I'm a poor man. How am I going to pay the bride price? You know the bride price for the princess? That was not cheap. Those days you had to pay a bride price to get married. You paid the dowry. So he says, man, I'm, I'm poor and lightly esteemed. I, what, what do I have? I have no title to give her. I don't have no lands, none of that stuff. You know, it's just, I'm just a... 
shepherd boy who'd done good. I'm in the army. I'm serving the Lord. So the servants of Saul told him, saying, in this manner, this is what David said. And Saul said, well, this is what you'll say to David. The king does not desire any dowry, but 104 skins of the Philistines. But you got to love the Bible, man. Because it just tells you what they've done. If I was writing this, I might have changed that to something else. You know, I don't know. 100 scalps. I don't know. Something, right? Surely you wouldn't say 100 foreskins. How many times do you have to say that word, preaching? In the Old Testament, a fair amount. Well, so take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to, take, to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. David, Saul's whole point was to see David die. Everything he's doing is to see David stumble. You ever have people like that in your life? All they care about seems like they just want to see you fall. They want to see you fail. They want to see you blow it. But David never gets rattled by it. On the pages of scripture, David is, why? Because his focus is, I'm serving God. I'm not doing this for you, Saul. I'm doing this for the Lord. That's why. And so that kept his attitude. His attitude in the right place. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased him. David's like, Oh, right on, dude. I can afford that. Really? You got to go kill a hundred Philistines and, well, you know. So, before the days had expired, David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave Michael, his daughter, as a wife. So David did double. Jesus said this. Remember Jesus said, if, if a man compels you to walk a mile, do what? Go, another. Go with him too. If he asks you for your, your shirt, give him your cloak also. He's talking about, man, don't just do the bare minimum to get by. If you're doing, the Bible says, in everything you do, in all you do, do it as unto the Lord. Man, I don't know what, where your talent lies or where your gifts lie, but wherever it lies, do that thing to the Lord. That's where you'll find fulfillment. You won't find fulfillment in fame. You won't find fulfillment in riches. You'll find fulfillment when you do your thing, whatever that gift, whatever that talent the Lord has laid on you, <clears throat> when you do it for him. So whatever David did, he did it for the Lord with his whole heart. So David wasn't going to do just what was required for the Lord. He did double. And he becomes a man of honor. Also a man feared by the enemies. And a man that the enemies one day are going to try to get to join them. How often is it that a man works for the enemy and then the enemy wants to make a deal with him so he'll come to their side? Doesn't happen very often. That's David. Why? Because what he did, he did for the Lord. To honor God. That was his focus. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. So Saul's just losing on all counts. He's thinking he's going to kill David by giving him his daughter and he gives his daughter to him, but she really loves him and David comes through and ends up getting all the foreskins that he asked him for and he's not dead yet and the Spirit of God's with him. And Saul is feeling like, man, do you ever wonder how long someone can bang their head against a stone wall? Forever. That's what Saul's going to do. Rather than repent and ask God for forgiveness, he is going to bang his head against that stone until the day God takes him home. He is going to rebel and fight against God's purpose in his life to the end. That's the attitude of him. Listen to this, verse 30. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and what? He will raise you up. David's not promoting himself, is he? He's not saying, hey, somebody needs to write a song about how great I am. No? He's just doing his thing, honoring the Lord. Because that is the attitude that comes out of a man or woman whose heart is after God. Amen?
Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for an opportunity to, to come before you. <clears throat> an opportunity to study your word and see just the amazing story that we see here of David. God, we ask that you would just continue to move, continue to work, continue to do your perfect plan and desire. God, that you would just have your way with us. Have your way in this place. God, that we would be men and women after your own heart, not self-promoters, not looking for the praise of people or crushed by the scorn, but simply doing what we do for your glory and your praise. It's not about me. It's all about you. God, may you be glorified in the choices we make, in the life that we live, in the things that we do before you. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And we're going to close out in a song of worship. We invite you guys to worship with us. And then I'll meet you in the foyer. And I did see snacks out there, noise, so there better be some when I get out there. I didn't finish my brother. Okay, good. So we'll see you guys out there. God bless you. Go in peace.
Father, we give you this night. Thank you that you are with us. No matter what we face, no matter where we are, may we have that attitude of David. Everything we do is all for you. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.